I'm Annette, and I am an alcoholic. And I want to welcome all the newcomers and people from out of town, especially uh, I heard somebody say Jersey. I escaped there and came to California. <laughs> but anyway, I got 35 minutes to tell you all about me. And this thing is bugging me. <clears throat> anyway, um, first I want to tell you all you newcomers and all you young people looking up here and seeing this person of age standing in front of you. And I just want to tell you, we all walk through doors of Alcoholics Anonymous or crawled or whatever. So I may not look like you feel right now, but I know exactly how you feel. And I hope to God you're as desperate as I was when I first came in this program. Because I was. So I will tell you a little bit about me, about how I got here. Uh, usually I hear people say, uh, tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. I can't tell you what it is, because I don't know it. I only know me. So I can tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And anything this changes is the result of this program. Uh, if you haven't guessed yet, I'm from the Bronx. And uh, actually, the last time I spoke for this meeting, the uh, per this is when it was up at the old district, uh, the person didn't show up with the key. And it was wintertime. So uh, we decided to have the meeting outside. And with my soft voice, they were able to hear me all the way in the back without any microphone. Because when you're in, from the Bronx and you've been in the theater, you learn how to project your voice. Especially if you live on the third floor yelling at your mother as she's coming out of the subway. You know, she's got to hear you. So anyway, alcoholism. I am one. Believe me, I am. Um, my first drunk was being social, as usual, as, or how I tried to be. I was four years old. My mother was having a, my parents were having a party. And I was in the kitchen with my dog and my cat. And my mother brought in a whole tray of glasses some of them had a little of this, a little of that, a little bit of this. And I was listening to everybody laughing and having a wonderful time. <clears throat> so I took all the glasses and I poured all everything that was in them into three bowls. One for the dog, one for the cat, and one for me. The dog and I promptly got very drunk. The cat didn't touch it. She must have been Alan on. <laughs> anyway, cats are smarter than uh, people and dogs. So my mother was told me later she was totally embarrassed because there I am, laying on the floor, singing with a beagle who's howling, you know, and trying to explain to everybody why their daughter is drunk. Well, the next morning, I remember my mother. Uh, coming up and waking me up and trying to shove an aspirin down my throat. And uh, I was not into any pills by that. So 
uh, we came downstairs and we heard this thumping sound coming from the patio. And it was our dog laying on the floor. And he was banging his head against the wall. Poor baby. So she shoved an aspirin down his throat, too. I had a great childhood. I'm, as I said, I'm from the Bronx. And I'm also from an area called Little Italy. Um, my father was the oldest of nine children. <clears throat> so we had a great big family. And my grandparents owned a house in the Bronx. And it was a three-family house. And my aunts and uncles lived upstairs. And every Sunday, you went to my grandparents' house. Whether you were going for dinner or not, you went there. There was always food. There was always fresh wine, because my grandfather made the wine. Um, and it was really a lot of fun. My cousins were my friends. And I uh, had a little sad phone call this afternoon, because one of my cousins is now in hospice. And so that was a little tough this afternoon. But we all got along great, had great times together. And then when I was 13, my father passed away. And my whole life changed. And suddenly, it was me and my mom. And we moved from a beautiful apartment overlooking the Hudson River to this little apartment sharing room. And suddenly, I was the latchkey kid, because now she had to go to work. And I was also sickly. I was always getting sick. So I was spending a lot of time by myself. And guess what I found? I found her alcohol stash. And I found that if I took a little drink, I would feel better. And, you know, it was more comfortable and everything. And she didn't know I was doing this. And thank God nobody came to visit because I kept adding water to the bottles. And I think by the time I moved out when I was 18, they were probably mainly water. And so anyway, uh, at 18, I met my husband, got married at 19, and we moved to California. And so, because he was an engineer. Anyway, so he <coughs> we moved to California. And he was, uh, it was ideal because he drank the way I like to drink. Now, he was brought up in a home that had no alcohol. And I was born in a home that always had alcohol and wine and everything. And uh, so he became an alcoholic, you know. And um, since I was familiar with alcohol, I was very comfortable drinking with him. Unfortunately, after two children, we moved back to New Jersey. <clears throat> he didn't like California. Um, he had other strange things about him. Anyway, uh, trying to do this as quickly as possible, uh, we moved back to New Jersey, and um, it took me nine years to get back to California. We finally got divorced, and I came back out here. But before we came back here, I was having more and more times where, um, well, I was in the dating world now, and you know, you guys are very generous when you're dating. Not when you're married, but when you're dating. <laughs> so 
Um, unfortunately, I was having some problems with getting home at night or, you know. Um, so anyway, I decided to move back to California. I didn't like the weather in New Jersey. So I threw the kids in the car and we came out here. And uh, I, everything was going really well. I was doing well. And I got a job as an insurance saleswoman, salesperson. And I found the ideal place because on Thursdays, we came in with what we had sold. And all of the agents went out. And we all went together. And they smoked their pot. And I drank my beer, not beer, wine. And um, more and more, again, I was getting into trouble. And unfortunately, so were my kids. And eventually, we got evicted from the apartment we were living in. And the kids went back east to live with their father. Well, I had nobody to take care of for the first time in my life, except me. And for a year and a half, my life went downhill so fast, till I finally wound up living with my mother. I, I was lost everything. I'm living with my mother in Irvine. She had moved out also. And um, one night, uh, I got a phone call. My kids were coming back because my ex-husband had become very abusive. And turns out he had a brain tumor. We didn't know that. So he, the kids came back, and I could not stop going out. I'm still trying to work. I'm living with my mother. And now I've got the kids there, too. And um, this one night, I, I came home. And uh, I think you women can understand what it's like to put makeup on including eye makeup, without looking in your own eyes. And I had gotten very adept at that. I also had a routine, which a bartender had told me was a good idea, when I called him and asked him, how do you drink and not get sick? And he said, you take two aspirins before you go to bed, and you make sure you don't drink any food food drinks, you just drink scotch or bourbon. Okay. Sounds good. So that's what I did, but every night. But because of my late hours and everything else, I started getting these real bad circles under my eyes. So uh, I started borrowing my mother's uh, Preparation H and using that under my eyes. So this one night, I come to, I literally came to, and I'm staring in my own eyes, and I am horrified. Here my children are. I can't stop going out. I can't stop drinking. And I love my kids. I really do. Two boys. And uh, I look in my own eyes, and, I, and like I said, I was horrified. And I did something very, very unexpected. I fell on my knees and said, God, please help me. Now, I didn't believe in God. I didn't want him. If he was there, I didn't want him to know where I was. You know, you stay in your alley, I'll stay in mine. And uh, I didn't have good experiences with religion, so anyway. And I fell on my knees, and I asked God to please help me. And so the next morning, um, I had to get a ride to work because I had lost my car the night before. 
some chapters. <laughs> and so, so um, I got a ride to work, and I'm sitting in my office, and the phone rings, and it's my best friend, who I hadn't seen in about a week. And she calls me and says, I've got to talk to you. It's important. I said, okay, meet me and take me to lunch, but i got to find my car. She says, okay. She didn't think anything of it, of course. And anyway, so she picked me up, and we went and found my car. And then we went to lunch, and I said, what's wrong? And she looked fabulous. I mean, she was a beautiful girl, but she really looked fabulous. And I said, what's going on? She says to me, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, very New Yorky, so new, you know? What else is new? And because uh, I always thought if I ever drank like her, I'd stop drinking. Anyway, she hadn't had a drink for five days, but she was going crazy. And I said, I know just the place for you. I said, somebody six months before had taken me to this place called the Newport Club down in Newport. It was in Sinalano Club. And uh, I thought it was wonderful for you people. And I was so glad I didn't need it. So anyway, yeah. So I, I tell her about this place, and she says, well, will you go with me? And I said, of course. So we walked up the stairs about 4 o'clock to this place, and there was a bunch of people playing cards. So these two guys came over to us. Now, she looks fabulous. I don't look so good. I am, by this time, I need a drink bad. I am feeling sick as a dog. I'm shaking. And this guy comes up and says, can I help you? And I said, she has a problem. Can you help her? <laughs> and he said, sure. And he said, well, let me get some brochures. So he goes and gets brochures, and comes over with two of the tests. And he says, while your friend is having taking the test, why don't you take it? And I said, sure. I like tests. You know, what the heck? So I, she got 20 yeses. I got three yeses. I was not into honesty at this point. <laughs> anyway, um, some people took us to a meeting over at, an, at a church. And during that meeting, something happened to me. It, and my friend said it was almost like a light bulb went off in front of my face. And I, I just was shocked. I, I had this electric shock that went through me. And I started to cry. Now, I was a tough kid from the Bronx. So I learned not to let anybody see you cry. I got beat up when I was seven years old or nine, I don't remember. And I swear nobody would see me cry. And here I am with all these people, I don't know any of you, and, I'm, and the tears are flowing and I can't stop it. So we went back to the Newport Club after the meeting, and people came and sat down and told us their story and got up and let nobody said, you should, you must, you have to, or anything like that. And finally, I said to her, I said, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And she said, of course I do. I said, but, you know, my answer is, she said, let's take that test again. 
if you do not want the truth, do not take that test with somebody you drank with. <laughs> 19 yeses. A little different when you, the honesty starts coming in. So I began my trip with this program. And uh, I got to tell you, it's amazing. That first week, now I worked for an insurance company. We didn't have places like this. We had one place um, up in Orange. And in fact, we didn't have uh, Ashland either. And there were times when I had to take women up to Norwalk Hospital because it was the only place they would take women. So God bless you gals, you're in a great place. Anyway, I didn't know anything about places you could go. So the Newport Club became my detox. And every morning I'd get up and go down there and sit there. And people would give me a quarter of a cup of coffee, and I thought they were being cheap. Hello. And it was because <laughs> my hands kind of shook a little bit. We have a visitor. But anyway, yeah. Um, so I would sit and go to a meeting, come back, you know, get my kids off to school, go home, feed them, come back, and uh, go to meetings. And that's all I did. And one Friday, uh, the first Friday that I was sober, I'm sitting there and I'm getting up and I'm going into meetings. And this was at noon. And uh, I sat down. And uh, tell you how sick I was. I didn't notice they were all men. So this man comes over to me, an old timer, and he says to me, um, he says, uh, this is a stag meeting. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and he said, it's a men's meeting. I said, you mean it's not AA? He said, no, it's AA for men. And I said, so I have to leave? And he said, yes. And I got up, and I went out to the coffee area. Now, it does not make sense, but at that point, I felt that AA was rejecting me. And I'm sitting there, and I'm about to leave. And I don't know if I'd be standing here today if what happened didn't happen. I'm sitting there, and this old-timer comes over to me, and he goes, you, in there. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, go in the meeting. I said, but you said, he said, look, we took a group conscience, and we decided you need a meeting. Jack Hamilton, if there's any old-timers who remember him. Anyway, yeah, I got up, and I went in, and I sat down, and... There were 12 men in that meeting, and they 12-stepped me. They talked to me, right at me, and they gave me hardcore AA. They told me I never have to drink again if I don't want to. They told me I never have to be alone again. I was the loneliest person in the world. I sat in bars. I was a bar drinker, and I sat in bars, and I drank, and I smiled, and I laughed, and I was dying inside. The one commonality that I found with all of us alcoholics 
is that feeling of not not belonging. Something is missing inside. Something that everybody, a secret that other people know, but for some reason we didn't get it. We didn't get it. I didn't get it. And when those men accepted me and had me sit there and listen to them and they 12-stepped me, for the first time I started to feel like maybe I could make it. Maybe I could belong. And I am so grateful to those men because I think they saved my life that day. And so started my journey. And so I got a sponsor. They told me to get a sponsor. That poor girl. I feel so sorry for her. Every morning, I called her. Every morning, I'd be crying and carrying on. Now, once the floodgates started, I couldn't stop them. You know, so I'm here all these years of not crying, and now I'm feeling. I'm feeling everything. I feel like every nerve in my body is it's burning up. And so I call her, and I'm crying and carrying on, and she says to me, go, do, go make your bed. I said, what's that got to do with my problem? Nothing. Go make the bed and call me back. And I said, okay. Because I'm willing, I'm willing to do anything you tell me. Because I don't want to be me anymore. I am done with me. I want to change. My life has to change. And the only thing that's going to change is me. So then I make the bed. And then I go down and call her again. Thank God she worked for an alcoholic so she didn't get fired. And so she says to me, now go do the dishes. It took me a few weeks to realize, how did she know the bed wasn't made and the dishes were dirty? But she knew. And that way she got me through the day. And then she'd say, OK, now go to a meeting. You know, make dinner, go to a meeting. Because now my kids are back, everything, you know, I'm trying to live. And so anyway, this is how my whole first year started. I had this sponsor, and she was wonderful. She put up with me until I knew she did this just to get away from me. She got married and moved to Washington. <laughs> it's awful. So anyway, she uh, left. So I figured I needed two sponsors just in case, you know? So I wound up with two sponsors. And finally made it to that first year. And I hear people say that the desire to drink was lifted just like that. I hated them because that wasn't me. I wanted to drink every single day. That craving didn't leave me. And the only thing I did was I didn't drink. And I went to meetings every day. I went to meeting in the morning. I went to, finally got a job. And I went to my job. Sometimes I'd go to a lunchtime meeting, and then I went to a meeting at night. And I was constantly in meeting because it was the only place I felt any form of sanity. So <clears throat> anyway, um, so I kept going to all these meetings. But finally, I, I took my first year chip. I think I took about 10, 20 of them, you know, go to meeting and meeting and getting a chip and yay and all that stuff. 
and uh, so on Saturday night, just like a Saturday night like this, I hated everybody. I was angry at the world. Why me? You know, I hadn't started working the steps yet. I had just a little bit. And so I, uh, I had taken a checkbook out of my... I should tell you guys, I got 40 years of sobriety. My AA birthday is April 5th, 1979. So things are a little different now, you know. So I had a checkbook, and I, put it, I thought I put it into my purse. And I went to the meeting, hated you all. You were all a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, went out for coffee afterwards, because we did that every meeting. And all the meetings started at 8.30 at night. You went to the meeting. You went out for coffee afterwards. You went home, went to bed, and you did it all over again. So anyway, uh, this one night, Saturday night, we got, went out to coffee, and it was quarter to 12. I lived in Irvine, and the Alpha Beta closed at 12 o'clock. And I walked in. I'm buying a bottle. I've had it with you guys. It's, you know, it's all your fault. It's not mine. And so I have the bottle in my hand, and I get up to the cashier, and uh, that checkbook wasn't in my purse. Now, I always kept a couple of checks just in case. They weren't there. I had two pennies. And I put them, the bottle back and got home, and I called my sponsor. By this time, it's 12 o'clock, and all the stores are closed. And I called my sponsor, and I told her what happened. And she very sweetly said to me, get your ass over here now. And she and her husband sat with me until 3.30 in the morning. And the truth was I hadn't surrendered. Until that moment, I had not surrendered. I hadn't drank, but I hadn't surrendered to the fact that I was an alcoholic, and this was my life from now on. And things are not going to be roses and, and, you know, all the time. Life happens, but I don't have to do it alone. And so I started working the steps, and I started changing. My life started getting better. And things started happening, and I started sponsoring girls and, you know, working with people. I was very, very active. Uh, I was in the group that was looking for Ashland, you know, finding place so that women could have a place. Unfortunately, my work was so busy, I didn't get to put a lot of time into it that I wanted to. But I'm so proud of that place. I really am. Anyway, um, but I'm single. My kids are growing up. And uh, I just said, you know, it's time. I really should have a man. Uh, Unfortunately, my picker was really pretty crappy. So after a couple of years, a few years of uh, not so good picks, I had a discussion with my higher power, who, in the beginning of my sobriety, I called Charlie, because my sponsor told me I could have any god I wanted, and for some reason the name Charlie, like Charlie Brown, came into play in my head, and I said, can I call him Charlie? She said, call him anything you want, as long as you have a higher power and you know it's not you. So, uh, 
anyway, um, I had this discussion with my higher power, and I said, okay, Charlie, um, my pick is broken. So if you want me to have a relationship, you're going to have to put it in my face because I'm not looking anymore. And so um, I didn't. And I worked on me for two years. I went uh, for counseling. I did all the steps. I found out that I could go places and do things without a man. You know, I went on to uh, conventions. I went to Hawaii when I connected. I was doing all these things. But the main thing was I was changing. I was growing. And finally, um, it was around my ninth birthday. Um, I was up at the convention up in, uh, what do you call up in Anaheim. And a uh, weird thing happened. I'm with two other girls. And uh, we go to get our tickets for the banquet. And there's two tickets at one table and one ticket way at the other side of the building, the whole dining room. So one girl says, well, I don't want to be alone. I'm going to be with Alkies, so it doesn't matter. So I'm sitting over at one end of the room, and they're at the other end. And after the show, everything is over. Instead of going out, I was going this way, across. And I hear this big Irishman from Brooklyn say, hey, that." Now, we had kind of dated and not, you know, and dated. And uh, anyway, it was this guy, Joe, and uh, he had five more years than me. Never let me forget it. <laughs> and um, anyway, he said I used the Mae West line. Now, most of you don't know who she is, but you know, why don't you come up sometime? And I remember saying, why don't you come up, some, call me sometime, you know. Anyway, we started dating. Dated, can you imagine? I never dated after I, you know, got married. That when you, you fell in love. You fell in whatever it was called. Anyway, <laughs> he called me up on Monday for Saturday night. And, you know, and... And he'd tell me where we were going, so I knew how to dress, including one time he took me to the Ritz you know, for my birthday. That was kind of nice. And so we started dating and dating, and finally uh, we realized we were in love with each other. And um, we were older and decided to do not a formal ceremony, but our own ceremony. And my mother was alive at the time, and I asked her permission, and she, she adored him. So we had three wonderful years, and then came 1993. And in February, Joe was, was diagnosed with uh, leukemia. In March, my mom died. In May, my aunt, who was like a second mother, died. And in July 15th, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to go through, it was very, very aggressive. I had to go through major surgeries and chemotherapy. And Joe took care of me the whole time. And 
Every time I turned around, you guys were there. People showed up to take me, to, you know, for chemo that I didn't even know. Um, because I had had double mastectomies, I weren't allowed, wasn't allowed to raise my hands above my head. And um, poor Joe, I had long hair. He was trying very hard to, this is before my hair fell out, he was trying very hard to do my hair and make me feel pretty. He wasn't doing a good job. <laughs> and so one day there's a knock at my door and this gal comes in and she says, I'm here to do your hair. And I said, oh, that's okay. And she said, get your head in the sink now. And that's what AA does. You turn around and they're there. And finally, in 1995, I'm back on my feet. I'm back to work. My hair's growing, and Joe got sick, and he passed away in 1995. And so we had all of really eight years all together, seven years. And uh, But I wouldn't give that up for anything. I would not have had that relationship because he treated me like a lady, he accepted me just exactly as I was, and I accepted him. I never had a relationship like that. I had to find out what you wanted. I tried to give it to you, try to, you know, and that's exhausting, trying to please everybody. I didn't have to do that anymore. And we laughed and we cried, and we had a wonderful relationship. And I miss him. I really do. But, like I said, I wouldn't give that up for anything. Uh, and his funeral, there was so much food left over that we, uh, people came and took care of me and took care of everything for us. I didn't have, when I was in the bar, you know, I got robbed. I got burglarized. It was, oh, gee, too bad. Not even can I buy you a drink, you know? Well, that's not the way it is here. My um, husband's sponsor used to say, build a fence of people around you, and then harm can't get to you, and you can't get out where harm is. And that is so true. It is really true. Get to know people. I have met the most phenomenal people, people that I wouldn't have drank with, and we get along great. You know, it's a different world. The acceptance that, that here is phenomenal. Um, I, you know, and every meeting I go to, I meet somebody new, and I put out my hand, and they put out their hand. And you know, when I first came in the program, I thought to myself, "Oh, the fun is over. I'll never laugh again. This is it. Serious time. Now you got to get, you got to grow up." Well, I found out that I'd really rather be childlike than childish. And I love life today. I really do. I've had many experiences where I shouldn't be alive. And I should have been alive from what was I was doing out there. But for some reason, God has kept me alive. And But I thought, you know, it's serious time. So when I was sober maybe a year, I had my, one of my uncles came out to visit me. 
And he tried to convince me that I could not be alcoholic because I'm Italian. As he's sitting there drinking his wine. Anyway, um, he absolutely, he said, you've been exposed to alcohol all your life, you know, so it's not a big deal, so how come, you know. And I just said, Uncle Mike, I don't care what you have to say. I know I'm an alcoholic. You didn't live my life before I got to the program, so I have no problem. But I found out there's got to be another person, who, another Italian, who had to be alcoholic. And that's Christopher Columbus. <laughs> you got to figure. He left where he was. He didn't know where he was going. When he got where he was, he didn't know where he was. When he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. And he had the whole thing financed by a woman. Now, if that's not alcoholic, I don't know what is. You know, I never thought I'd hear laughter like that. And it is amazing how if you... You know, the only thing I've done perfect in all these years is I haven't drank and I haven't died. And some old-timer told me that's how you become an old-timer. And so that's the only thing I have done perfect. Nobody works this program perfectly, but I am so grateful, so incredibly grateful that I can stand here tonight and look out at you beautiful faces and share what little I have. And just, I'm so grateful for the life you've given me. Some of it's been very, very tough, and some of it's been absolutely wonderful. But I wouldn't have missed a single day of it. Thank you for letting me share.